Listening to Manhunter Radio with Jeff Shetler, the leading podcast for all things tracking and trailing in law enforcement, military, and search and rescue. Leash up and hold on for the ride. Okay, so uh, welcome to another episode of Manhunter Radio. You're here with me, Jeff Shetler, your host, and today's guest is Ken Pavlik. He's a longtime canine rock star that goes way back. He's been in the industry for a very, very long time. Uh, he's one of the uh, original goats out there. And I'm really pleased to, to get to have him here today. And uh, Ken, if you could, could you go ahead and give us, uh, your, our listeners, a little background about where you come from, who you are. I know there's going to be some folks out there that don't know who you are, and then there's a, probably a heck of a lot more who do. Um, Tell us about your background, how you got started in canine and um, the whole, you know, the whole shebang. Okay. Well, um, first off, my name's Ken Pavlik, and currently I own and operate Pacific Coast Canine up in uh, Custer, Washington, which is five miles from the Canadian border and five miles from the ocean. So we're about as far northwest as you can go in the continental United States. Uh, I started playing with dogs in the canine world back in 1982 in the Air Force. I was a patrol dog handler. Then I went to a 12-week bomb dog handler class when it was joint run by DOD and FAA, the precursor to TSA. Then I sent back for, for a drug dog school, handled two dogs during that time period, got shipped off to the Philippines, which at that time was the largest canine kennel in the world. We had close to 127 dogs at Clark Air Base. Mm-hmm. So I pushed a patrol dog for a couple months out in the jungle, uh, then went on to a cross-trained bomb dog for a number of months, uh, progressed to the remedial patrol dog trainer for all the patrol for the 90 patrol dogs there, and then got promoted to final position was the detector dog trainer for the 27 cross-trained detector dogs we had there. Left the Air Force in 1986, went to work for Riverside County Sheriff's Department, stationed down in Indio, California. Did about two and a half years on patrol. Uh, at that time, I, we had one dog in the Indio station, and I helped him with some of his training when he promoted. And then I got that dog spot in late 18, 1989. Uh, went to Adler Horse for patrol dog school, came back, worked the road for a year, went back to Adler Horse for narcotics detector dog handler class. Um, shortly after, a couple years after that, Riverside County separated from using Dave Reaver and Adler Horse as our contract trainer. We went to Danny LeMaster at Master Canine. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny's uh, since deceased. But I did some work for him training uh, bomb dog classes, narc dog classes on the side, at the same time running a dual-purpose Malinois out in Indio, California, out in the desert. Mm-hmm. Stayed there till 94. Um, I had originally went to the military from Idaho, and I wanted to go back home. I had enough of Southern California. I was running the only dog in the valley, working 60, 80, 60 hours a week, plus on the SWAT team with the dog. Uh, I wanted to slow my pace down. Went to a small sheriff's department just outside uh, in Nampa, Caldwell, Idaho, Canyon County. Uh, mm-hmm. Sheriff there asked me to start a canine program. Um, I did. I started with my retired Malinois, and then I got a shepherd, and then through the years grew that program. To where the time I left full-time law enforcement in 2003, I had 15 dogs and handlers working for me that I procured them all. I trained them all. Uh, five of those were dual, dual purpose. Ten of those were single purpose sporting brigs, narc dogs. Uh, 
prior to that, during that time frame, while I was there, my sheriff had gone to the state sheriff's association meeting and told all the sheriffs there that uh, if any of them wanted a drug dog, I would find them a dog, train them a dog, train their handlers. So basically, um, the last so much for so much for slowing down, Ken. But go ahead. Yeah, it kind of spiraled out of control. Um, uh-huh. You know, so I ended up writing standards for the state of Idaho. Um, was a certifying official. I probably trained another 40 plus dogs throughout the state. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2003, some little life-changing events took place and I planned to relocate to Washington state um, with the full intent of just going to be another cop again. I was happy being a cop. And while I was in the process of that, um, I decided, came up with some talking that I should maybe just start a dog business and see how that goes. And did in April of 2004. And here we are in 2022, still going strong. Um, The focus of my business is is mostly uh, sporting breed dogs for detection work, lab springers, golden retrievers. Uh Um, Just one because after all those years of bite dogs, it hurts doing bite dogs anymore. It's not any fun. and there just wasn't anybody in the market that was seeming to do that. So we're more of a niche operation. That was never my intention. Uh-huh. Um, so it's kind of interesting coming on and talk to you because for the last 17 years, people only see me as a detection guy. They don't realize yeah. that, you know, I handled patrol dogs. I've trained patrol dogs. Uh-huh. Um, while I was there in Idaho, I went to Utah post. I'm in teaching judge at a Utah post under Wendell Nope. Um, yep. I trained with a whole lot of people, the, things we do here are not mine. Um, they're an amalgamation of all the various people I've trained with through the years. Along the way, I became, I was a SWAT dog instructor with, uh, Brad Smith on skids, one of his first SWAT instructors. Um, amazing program. And, uh, to date we've put probably close to 2000 dogs out in the field, either, uh, with agencies or private security companies doing bomb and dope work, but it's been brought to a couple of people. So, you know, it's interesting here that I'm on a, tracking program because people are going to go what's this guy know about tracking well i've been doing quite a few tracking dogs through the years and still do currently mm-hmm. so that kind of brings you up to date to where i am mm-hmm. but <laughs> you know what you just uh, you hit my bread and butter and really what this the show is all about um you know hunting people and you know I, i'm really really excited to hear about your your tracking program because just like you said you know, if anybody does any research on you, Ken, and any anybody really looks at what you do, you're famous for your detection dogs and the quality that you put out. We all know about that, but nobody really knows about the tracking stuff. And heck, I had no concept that you even worked a bloodhound until I read your CV. And so tell us a little bit about your, your tracking history. Where, where did you come from in that? How did you start? And then let's really kind of float into the bloodhound aspect of it too. Sure. That started primarily, um, I owe that to the military. Uh, uh-huh. you know, they rolled off school with tracking. Um, uh-huh. when I got to the Philippines, the first three months I was there was on a patrol dog. Um, a lot of the senior NCOs there at the kennel, there were quite a few of them were Vietnam era handlers, either out of Thailand or Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I learned about tracking people was spent in the jungles under the tutelage of those people who paved the way mm-hmm. um when i got uh adlerhorst i got one of the first three malinois that they ever placed with riverside county of course Rivers- adlerhorst is located in riverside county and tracking there is a wholly separate different program but i was out in the desert by myself um not much containment 
um, a lot of crime going on. So I trained that Malinois track. And mm-hmm. in fact, my, my very first bite apprehension, whatever you want to call it, was off a track with that Malinois, off an armed robbery of a market out in the county. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tracked a whole bunch uh, down there. There was quite a bit of single car rollover DUI accidents. Mm-hmm. And the CHP one time they got there, figured the guy ran off. He was drunk, towed the car, guy didn't show up. Family went back to the scene where it happened. And four days later, they located the body about 300 yards away. Oh, geez. So after, so after that, that caused a big public stir. So just about every time there was a accident where a driver either fled on foot or a single rollover with no occupant around, I got called out to track people. Uh-huh. So I tracked a lot of people that way. Mm-hmm. Um did several higher profile tracks with my SWAT team. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's one of the things we could talk about. You know, I had never heard, and I did not certainly coin the term proximity alert. I think I, maybe that's owed to you, but that was my first experience with something like that happening on a uh, an incident. I mean, I can talk about it if you want. Yeah, um, sure. It, yeah, no, we can. We can definitely go into that. What, what, what? Uh, there was a st- there was a stolen vehicle out of Pomona coming down oh. eastbound I ten. Of course, I Interstate ten ran right through my patrol area. Chippies uh-huh. were in pursuit. The guy spins out in the median. They bail out of the they, driver and passenger little Datsun pickup, Toyota pickup. I can't remember what driver. They barricade themselves behind the doors. One's got an AK and the other's got an M one Garand, mm-hmm. and they're flinging rounds at the chippies that are facing them head on. Um, What's that? Ninety five or ninety six. Oh, no, this is probably 92, 93. Sounds familiar. I think I heard about this. But anyway, go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I I left. No, it's fine. I I left California in 94, so it's pre-94. Okay. I'm trying to remember the exact date. All I can tell you is at the time, we were carrying SIG P220s, Mm -hmm. uh, 45s with seven-round mags, and that learned in that firefight that 21 rounds of ammo is not enough in a handgun. (laughs) Yeah, especially when you're dealing with rifles. Yeah, when we're dealing with rifles. So uh, the passenger, he got broken down by skipping rounds off the pavement underneath the door. He was barricaded behind uh-huh. and ended up putting him down. And the driver took off running northbound, jumped a three-wire fence and off into a citrus grove. Uh-huh. So we sat up there and waited for my SWAT team to get there. SWAT guys came and we started tracking the guy through the citrus grove. Um, and at the time, I would just track with those guys in a wedge formation with me at the point. Yep. And then in uh, a wedge following behind me. And as I got closer... I'd suck back. So I'm no longer the point of the wedge, but uh, a three man across basically. And if I had to, I'd suck even closer behind the, the guys with the heavy armor mm-hmm. um, as we were tracking. And we started getting dogs started. I knew we were getting close and I stopped everybody, took a knee and said, Hey, I think we're getting really close. The dog's getting squirrely. And we were figuring out how we were going to send people around on the flank. Um, we were waiting for a helicopter to get there. Helicopter hadn't got there yet. And then we got advised by dispatch. This guy ran up to the house of the rancher there, pounded on his front door and said, hey, people are trying to kill me. Of course, he answered the door with the 357 Magnum mm-hmm. and had the guy proned out a gunpoint on his front porch. And we were probably <laughs> less than 50 yards away. <laughs> so tell me about the proximity alert on that one. So obviously that happened as you're thinking about flanking. How did that occur? And kind of, if you don't mind, kind of describing it for our listeners. Well, you know, he starts pulling harder. Um, most of my tracking, I didn't track in a harness a whole lot with him. It was choked in on a dead ring underneath uh-huh. the front leg. Um, I didn't keep him in a harness in the car. So a lot of times there wasn't enough time to put him in a harness. You just throw something on him and go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the tension's different. The head starts coming up a little bit higher. Um, mm-hmm. The ear set. It's, it's almost like a change in behavior you see for a large amount of dope or, or bombs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting it. It's almost, it's almost like when you hit a scent pool where you're tracking a guy and you know, he sat down yeah. and the dog circle a bit and work his way out of a scent pool. Mm-hmm. You get kind of that similar behavior. Mm-hmm. He's pulling harder. Um, little head starting to pop up a little bit, almost turning into an air scent. And I, I can't tell you to this day, which way we're tracking with the wind against the wind across it. I, I don't remember. Right. Right. Um, but it's one of those things. Once you know, you've seen it, you know what it means. Mm-hmm. And I had had that happen several times before in the dark tracking people. Um, so yeah, that's about the best way I can describe it. It's just a change of behavior that you have to learn and go, okay, this, see that you need someone that's with you to say, Hey, see that, that what's happening. That means we're getting close. When did you, and so that that's going to bring me up to my, my next question. I'm glad you actually said that. Who, <laughs> who, who, who kind of taught you about that? Because it's some important stuff. And historically speaking, if we look at tracking programs, especially in the, you know, eighties and nineties, that really didn't exist. So how did you, how did you learn about that? Um, a lot of the assistance I got doing this was with Pat Belts. Um, uh-huh. And I don't, you're a California guy, so you might know of Pat. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't. Pat was the trainer over for Palm Springs Police Department at the time when I was in Indio. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, three single purpose patrol dogs and one uh, sporting breed narc dog in the narc unit that Pat trained and maintained. But mm-hmm. Pat had gone to Germany, he had gone to the PSP school over in Germany. Pat had also gone when Wendell ran PSP America. Mm-hmm. So Pat was a big PSP guy. That was mm-hmm. my introduction to PSP a lot. Um, and Pat spent, had, Pat competed in the Meisterschaft when it was years ago, when it was joint run with the Schutzen Club and the German Shepherd Breed Club in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a ton of dog experience and he was, he was a big help to me mm-hmm. because at the time my agency gave me uh, one eight hour block of training at the Adler Horse Kennel, which was 86 miles away. And the rest was on me. Mm-hmm. Until uh, Florida versus Harris came out. Mm-hmm. And I just put a copy of that in my boss's captain's inbox and said, uh, be advised, this is what's happening here. And suddenly I got training time because I said, you've been notified. It's kicked up the line to you now. And so I got to spend uh, four hours, the other three weeks of the month with Pat. Vicarious liabilities. It was an amazing thing back then. It changed a lot for everybody. Yeah, that, that made a huge amount of the training that I got personally mm-hmm. um, when the liability aspect was brought up. So I think he was mm-hmm. about the biggest resource I had. We spent a lot of time at that period of time was also when the first integration of dogs with SWAT teams was coming up through LA County. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, Danny was the, had the contract for the LA County SO dogs. And so we integrated a lot. Uh, actually, I was taught by the LA County guys that pioneered SWAT uh, canines training days with those. And my SWAT team, we cross-trained. We went to the LASO SWAT Acad- to their SWAT Academy. Mm-hmm. before Riverside County started their own. Um, so there was a lot of co-working back and forth. A lot of that came from um, Kenny Bickerstaff, who was the head trainer with LASO back in those days. Um, mm-hmm. Phil Geisler was the senior handler. And mm-hmm. those are the guys that taught me a lot of that stuff. So you you weren't in River, were you in Riverside? You couldn't have been when they started their Bloodhound program. So I think that was like 96, no, right? that was that was later. Actually, this ties in. If we talk about bloodhound stuff, was yeah. when Kobe when Kobe Webb first started the bloodhound program for Riverside. Right. Like, um, I ran. I met her. I was teaching at a bloodhound seminar in North Idaho at the University of Idaho, as a matter of fact, and that's when I met Kobe. Mm-hmm. And she shows up and she's in a Riverside County uniform. I was like, I can't believe you worked for Riverside County. I worked for Riverside County. <laughs> Yeah. So small world. So Kobe and I are, you know, we're still friends. We stay in touch. We've, we've kept in contact through the years. Um, but the bloodhound started with me. I, th- I had a lot of interest in 
uh, search and rescue stuff. Mm-hmm. I was a hiker and a climber, and I really like to do that. Um, but we didn't have any full-time deputies do that. However, I had a captain that was big into it. And so I deployed with my patrol dog on a ton of uh, missing persons cases up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And that's where I first met Larry Harris. Oh, and, okay. and Larry was just, we were talking because they were putting me out doing stuff with, with my dog tracking and doing area, clearing area searches a lot more yeah. than tracking. Yeah. Um, but bloodhound people would show up from Orange County and from LA County. And so I had talking around a command post and met Larry and talked to Larry. And I said, you know, I think I'd really like to try this, get a mm-hmm. bloodhound just to see what it's like. Because, mm-hmm. you know, all the hype back then, all the hype, they're so magical and they can track forever and through cars and all that stuff. Six, six month old trails, car trails. Yeah. yeah. So right. I went and so I, I got a four, 16 week old puppy mm-hmm. from a breeder in Corona that Larry hooked me up with. Who was the breeder, uh, if you don't mind me uh, asking? Because um, you remember? No, it, they were in Corona. Uh-huh. Um, and it, I know. Go ahead. I think it was a, a PhD family, but they weren't into. Uh, if I can't remember the name of them, anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. They, they were just a breeder, and Larry knew him. And Larry said, uh-huh. "Hey, we've got puppies from her lines that have worked for us uh-huh. before." So Larry hooked me up with her. Um, we went to her house there in Corona, which is halfway between, well, just south of Riverside, between mm-hmm. Riverside and, and Santa Ana, where Larry was. Mm-hmm. And Larry, we picked out a puppy. And I would see Larry once a week, maybe once every other week, we'd meet up and he'd give me homework and he'd say, okay, go, this is what you're going to do with this puppy for the next thing. And that went all the way through um, for about a year. And then I left California and took the puppy with me and mm-hmm. finished him off and certified him up there. And I ran him for about three or four years. So that's how the puppy thing, that's how the blood health thing came apart. I just well, wanted Let me, to, uh, let me ask you something. Let me yeah, ask you some questions about the bloodhound thing then. You know, so let you know, most people don't know this unless they, they read my first book, uh, Red Dog Rising. Um, I gave Larry a little bit of credit in that because he was one of the first people I talked to about getting a bloodhound when I started. And, um, you know, I did you ever meet Glenn Rimby by any chance? I did not meet him, but I know the name. Yeah. So Glenn, my, my first dog was out of Glenn's lines and I just kind of got lucky, you know, frontier. Uh, uh, frontier mountain hounds or something like that. Uh, and, um, you know, my first dog Ronan came directly from Larry's input, you know, so Larry had a little bit to do with my initial training. Uh, and you know, when I first started, just like you, um, I was brought up on the myths of, of, you know, how amazing the dogs were and granted they do track. And I think they track incredibly well if you have the right drive, but, um, how do you feel about, I know Larry probably told you some of the same things he told me back then. And back in those days, in the early 90s, you know, they were touting trails up to four and six months old. How do you, how do you feel about stuff like that? Well, I could, I guess I can fast forward. I've never seen anything like that, and I don't believe it's true. Um, uh-huh. My, uh, I kind of got banished from the bloodhound world. Back <laughs> yeah. in- me too, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> the, late, the late 90s, um, there was, a because uh, I had was was a certifying official for Idaho Post. Uh-huh. And my bloodhound, we certified to the same tracking standard that the patrol dogs certified, which was a DPO level one track, 600 meters, two turns, cross track, age the minimum of 30 minutes. It's not required. Nice patrol track. track. Yeah, a patrol track, but that was all the one that was available at the time. Mm-hmm. So we ran the bloodhound on it. Mm-hmm. Well, a bunch of search of SAR people started hearing about how there was a certi- post certified bloodhound and they had bloodhounds. And they asked me if I could certify them. And I said, well, you're not cops, so you can't certify under post. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, could you write us something that's saying 
we did a track equivalent to the Idaho Post for police dogs. But the only reason you can't give us a post certification is because we're not police officers. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, okay, we, we can. I can write something that say on this day, this time, I conducted a standard track like I would do with a police dog, and your dog successfully passed it. And they said, great. And this is in far eastern Idaho, up in Idaho Falls. Mm-hmm. at the time so they, they they paid for me to come on out you know the friday night was all fun and games we had a good time um saturday morning i did like a half day seminar and the first two dogs wanted to track to try to do a track trail whatever trail track i'll use it interchangeably so i apologize me too and um so i go out i i lay what i think is a decent decent track nothing major so we come back let it age come back to the start and the first person walks up with this hound and they're like okay What's at the end of the track? I said, well, we put, you gave us a toy. We put one of your toys at the end of the track. And they said, okay, well, who's the track layer? I said, me. And they said, but you're walking the track behind me. I said, well, yeah, I have to know where you go. And they said, oh, my dog's just going to take two steps and turn around and run right to you. Mm -hmm. I said, excuse me? I said, you don't do handler tracks. You've never had your dog track yourself. Nope, 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 nope. So I said, okay. And they went out and it was a disaster. So I said, yep, we'll try again tomorrow. And the next one came and missed a turn. And I had always gone under the, if you're more than a leash length off the track, it's a failure. Mm-hmm. So if you're running a 30 footer, if I know where the track is and you're more than 30 feet left or right of the track, I'm failing you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I failed two more after that and said, well, let's come back the next morning. And that Saturday I had like 15 people there come back Sunday. There's two left. Mm-hmm. Everybody else fled down. Mm-hmm. And they did. Yeah. Know, they, they, they saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. And then two of them, two, the other two, two of them successfully passed and, and all was good. Um, and then we, so we sat and talked, I said, what about backtracks? And they're like, Oh, oh you can't do a backtrack. I said, okay, well, I did that with my patrol dogs. Cause there was times I was out in the woods in the middle of myself in the dark. And I don't know how to get back to my car. I don't know how to get out of here. There's no GPSs. Um, radios intermittent. I taught my dog to backtrack. I ran backtracks all the time. Take me home, buddy. And he'd take me back to the car. And they were like, oh, you can't do that. They're going to screw up the dog. Their heads exploded on this stuff. And I said, okay, well, whatever. So this segs now forward a year or two to the seminar I was previously talking to up in northern Idaho. And Larry is there. And the not Glenn Rinby, but the guy out of Denver that later caused all the big stink with the false tracks and the false crime scenes. And I don't remember his name. Jerry Nichols. Jerry Nichols. Yeah. So Jerry Nichols was there. Mm-hmm. So at the time, Larry, Larry was big into the uh, scent transfer unit. Oh, yeah. if you remember still that is. thing? Well, I don't <laughs> think he's alive anymore, but that thing's yeah. still alive and well. Yeah. So he wanted was big on, you're going to be the Pacific Northwest region guy with the scent transfer unit and the FBI is going to use you all the time and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So we're at this seminar and again, I'm doing stuff with these people and they come out and they're all doing the, the rubber gloves in the Ziploc bag with tongs with somebody's with the track layer sock. And I like, yeah. here, here's your scent article. And they're like, oh my God, you touched the bag. You're not wearing yeah. gloves. And I was like, yes. So what? Oh, you yeah. contaminated the scent article. I was like, okay. So then they do the little demo, the scent transfer unit, and that's which is for people who don't know, it's basically a dust buster atop a piece of tube, and they right. suck the air off the car seat through the gauze pad, and then they claim that if you put that gauze pad under the dog's nose, he knows the scent of the person that last sat in the car. Yeah. And I said, let me get this straight. Uh-huh. Okay. Me handling the dirty sock uh-huh. of the person contaminates it. But, but you're yet, doing this off the machine off of a car. But you're but doing this ahead, off, of, off of French fries <laughs> and ass sweat. And this doesn't make any sense to me. 
yeah. then they did, then Nichols did his missing man lineup where they sent the dog on a wallet and they got eight people standing in the field and uh-huh. the dog magically could pick the person out of the scent lineup from sniffing uh-huh. uh and i'm like and of course they all knew who the person was whose article it was because like wait a minute this is this is not blind this is garbage uh-huh. and they didn't like me speaking up with that and then we got into the harness question i said okay we, we, yeah i understand about in and some people might get butt hurt over this, but I understand about rituals and initial training and this and that. And some people take it to the ultra Uber extreme, right. but then you get guys that come up and go, well, he needs to be in a harness. So he knows he's tracking. I said, okay, yeah. well then the converse applies. That means your dog won't track if he's not in a harness. Well, no, he'll track if he's not in a harness. So then why does he have to be in a harness to track? You have to, you can't take one half of the equation, Right. Is that, is I've got a great, I've got a great YouTube video. I've got a great YouTube video on that from back in the day. I had a, a very similar argument with an old timer and um, you know, he says, you know, he's just not going to do his job if he doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to do based on the equipment that you put on him. And so I took, I took one of our dogs that of course I use a harness, but I do it just for the comfort of the dog, not, not because it's required. I actually sure. believe the dogs track better with no equipment at all. And um yeah, I put a purple ballerina's tutu on the dog, and that was the only equipment. And then we did a nice long half mile track with that, and of course, it was beautiful. So, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just had to yeah. throw that out because I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, it's pretty similar. So, <laughs> so, that, so after so that came, you, I was like, I'm I'm done with you, bloodhound people. What? So you know, did you ever try to do these incredibly aged trails that these these folks are suggesting? No. Okay. So right off the bat, you felt it was voodoo and not really workable, right? No. And, and part of it is maybe from the SAR perspective, I don't know, but as Mm -hmm. a cop, we have to factor in time and distance. Mm -hmm. I I, I have no interest in tracking. I'm not going to put something, there's nobody going to waiting on the end of a 24 hour track that I'm going to put to jail. Mm -hmm. I'm not a SAR person. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to go look for what now I had successful tracks with my bloodhound. I had a couple Alzheimer people that walked away that we tracked, um, stuff like that, but that was all within a, you know, 20 minute to an hour time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look even an aged hour old track, average person could easily walk a mile in 20 minutes, which is three miles in an hour. Um, unless there's some reason for them to go to ground and hunker up, which a person's not going to do you're not going to, there's, there's no such thing as a six hour, six mile, 24 hour old track. People are going to keep walking unless they're hurt or they die. You're never going to catch anybody. Well, and so if I, they are out there injured, it's going to be a big, massive scent. Right. It's going to have a big impact on that track in the long right. run. Anyway. Yeah. So, so that's, I didn't feel, feel the need to do it. It doesn't make, it doesn't serve my needs for what my job is. Well, when I first came on, you know, um, I was completely ignorant of, anything canine really and bloodhounds and their supposed mythological capabilities were what I was trained on. And I, I kind of ate it, you know, hook, line and sinker. I mean, I was probably the biggest catfish on the the end of a line uh, in those early days. And I practiced it and I preached it and I thought that I could do it. As a matter of fact, in those early days, believe it or not, I was certified on a track out to two weeks old. Um, you know, now I understand why all this occurred, but it actually took reality on the street and some reality and training to realize that in almost every one of these situations, I was guiding my dog to source. 
Uh, either I did it because I knew where the source was or somebody with me helped me guide it through body language and through, through body language and where they're walking. Sure. Um, exactly. And you got the, the, my, the thing with the bloodhound that was not, you know, this, the sheriff's department, Riverside County. I did all that on my own. It was just something I wanted to do for my own experience. Hey, I think I should try uh-huh. to learn how to ride a bloodhound. Yeah. Now, when I took him to Idaho, the sheriff was like, yeah, okay. Well, they had had bloodhounds before. So he was like, oh yeah, we'll take your bloodhound. But that year or so that I was running that one, all that meeting with Larry and all that, that was all on my own time. Yeah. Um, that was something I just, it was just to expand my horizons, I guess, a little bit. Um, so, so let me ask you a question. You know, you had some success with the bloodhound. You had success with your mouths. You had success sure. with your shepherds. And, you know, as, as dog trainer handlers go, you're, you're very seasoned. Um, how do you believe the bloodhound stacks against any other breed or how do you feel about breed specific for any particular job? I, I'm not a proponent of breed specificity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the blood, a properly selected bloodhound can track. So can a properly selected Malinois and a German shepherd. Um, I've seen some phenomenal tracking standard poodles. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen a couple, um, Yag Terriers that are just phenomenal tracking dogs. Um, mm-hmm. I've had, I've had tremendous success in the last three to five years with labs, with my labs that are tracking in Texas and, and your state in South Carolina. Those guys mm-hmm. in South Carolina are tearing it up. They're, yeah. Well, they're, we've got God, God's gift to tracking country here though. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is a, an abundant scent source. You're right. Yeah, it's everything's yeah. moist and damp. And yeah. um, you, even if it's boiling in the summer, you come out at night, you got rain again. Yeah. They're, that country's born to track. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's just like detection work. It's any dog. If the dog's got it, the dog can do it. But just because they're of a certain breed doesn't automatically give them superstar status. Yeah. Well, I want to talk, ask you some questions about this FBI program, because, you know, I in those early days, I was uh, part of that as a pilot program. And, you know, it originally started uh, with the HRT team. And in those days, it wasn't really a bunch of mythical stuff. It was really deployment on high-risk fugitives and missing and exploited children. That was the, the purpose of the program. It later morphed into some of this other stuff that, that you're seeing. Um, and, you know, back in, in that time frame, as they started to get into the, what was it, the STU 5000? What was the dustbuster called again? Yeah, the STU 27 or something. I don't even remember 5000 maybe by then. Yeah. Anymore. Well, yeah. you know, the, the inventor of that was a guy named Bill Tolhurst. And, and you know, Bill Tolhurst is one of the forefathers of a lot of the modern bloodhound work. And you probably have seen some of his books. And I'm sure Larry. Uh, talked, I, talked I've, I own all of them, read them all back in those days. Yep. Because Larry was a huge, was a, you know, Bill Tolhurst was a mentor to, to Larry, just like Larry was to you and I. Yeah. And and I and I I read all of those too. And in the early days, I I took everything verbatim. But as it gave me a fresh flat, you know, slap in the face, I, I realized that a lot of, you know, this age trail stuff really wasn't viable. And but he was the one that brought out the SDU, and the whole concept behind that was that okay, we take this vacuum, we put a sterile Johnson and Johnson gauze pad on it, and then we can suck the human scent from any contact source. And now that's a viable scent article. Um, my big concern back then, and I'm going to just ask you for your thoughts on this. Even back then, when I was still relatively a novice, um, I looked at that and I'm going, okay, so you're taking a, a vacuum cleaner 
whether it's sterile or not, and you're sucking out at a rate of whatever CFM that is from a particular source onto this gauze pad, aren't you also sucking in all the ambient air from in and around that area to include other people that are watching? Isn't that happening as well? I mean, what do you think about that? Um, I don't, I didn't really give it much thought about the other people around because it's sucking with contact, but more of the, all the other odors that are on a car seat. I mean, like the French fries, like the French fries and ketchup and spilled coffee. And if they're a smoker, cigarette smoke. Yeah. Um, however many people have sat in there before sweating or spilling things. It's just, I, I, it just didn't make sense to me that this dog could so are so super specific that just that little bit, they can tell which is what it, it just didn't make sense to me. And some of the well, issues, more importantly, if you get something cross contaminated, let's say several people sat in that seat, you know, for example, beat officer coming in to pull the registration out of the car before yep. you got there with your vacuum, you know, what or you he put his hand there? on, put his hand on the seat to lean in to get something out of your center console, looking for a registration or looking to see for a gun. Oh, the most recent human sent on that seat is then the cop. It's not the person that sat there. So how do, and you know how cops like to do crime scenes. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they stick, they stick their fingers everywhere. You know, here, I'm going to give you just a little, my first introduction to that thing was a couple of the, of Larry's protégés brought, um, it was actually in a school in Kansas where we did it and they brought the unit out. Uh, and I remember it was a rainy cold day and they were vacuuming off of another body. So they were vacuuming contact odor from a suspect, a training suspect, um, off of another body. And that's supposedly how the dog tracked. And then the second one, um, I guess they really started going to some kind of extremes and, um, they burnt a car up, you know, on site, they had a fire department come and burn a old hoopty up. And then they scented, they made a scent pad off this burnt car. And then they started to track from the location of, of where this, you know, arson had occurred. And, um, you know, I was really amazed that number one, you know, how are you going to burn a car? And I don't care if you have a vacuum or not, how is anything biologically still going to be viable after that extreme heat? But yet they were able to get a track off of it. And I, I got to looking at it and here we are, are in this real nice rural area. And there was only one single track out. And that was the guy who laid the trail. <laughs> yeah. I, right. I didn't, I didn't need it. I was going to go track a burnt car. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that was the next claim to fame. And that's, you know, honestly, that's when believe it or not, the FBI started their own program called, um, uh, sent evidence, uh, detection unit or something like that. And they were actually out and about until almost 2009 or oh, 2010. Wow. Uh, and they used this device, the STU 5000 and, and a lot of other different things and had worked quite a few different cases all around the country, you know, like the DC sniper case, uh, sure. you know, the anthrax Stephen Hatfield case, they misidentified, they misidentified him actually in a, in a criminal case, uh, two of their handlers who were from Southern California came up and, and worked that case. Uh, and they used the SDU 5,000 on it and they misidentified him in a semi sent lineup in a, in a police department, which led to, I guess, a very healthy payout by DOJ several years later. 
I don't know if yeah, you heard it, anything about all those deals with it. No, you know, that was my, my limited exposure was Larry trying to sell me to be one of the people that to, to do it. And then that one demo where I said, this is a bunch of crap. And then I pretty much separated myself from the bloodhound wow. world and went off and did my own thing. Well, it's still alive and well. There's still people doing it now, and they're still trying to sell it to police departments to include the multiple-day-old tracks. I think I'm almost out to two- or three-month-old tracks. It's one of the things they're selling. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see how it's humanly – I don't think it's possible, but people people – sometimes it's hard to shake belief systems, right? Yeah, well, you know, you think with law enforcement that you, you at least honestly – have some reflection on what you do if if it's being questioned it it brings in that whole vicarious liability issue that you know that we were talking about earlier you know remember when you threw in that that document uh into your captain's uh mailbox right yeah was one of the reasons why you got that training that you needed was because of vicarious liability and you know when you're notified that something may be problematic and could have you know financial or you know, physical ramifications to the public, then you have an obligation to honestly reflect on it and at least look into it. Yeah, well, until someone brings it to their attention, they don't know. And a lot of it comes down to money, right? If yeah. some sheriff, some sheriff's department has got no money and somebody walks up and says, hey, I got a bloodhound, I'll do tracks for you and I won't charge you. They're like, sure, bring it on. Yeah, that's true. And that actually happens a lot here in the South. You know, uh, yeah, that's pretty much where it's more pre it's more predominant, you know, on the West coast, it wasn't such a big thing because, you know, California OES regulated all that stuff, mm-hmm. um, with the car. Well, you know, OES is OES and Carta have taken that multiple day old track hook, line and sinker, and they actually certify for it nowadays. Oh, geez. Yeah. See, I'm not yeah, aware of that. They're certifying tracks out to 72 hours, I believe, um, in a wooded or, or even in an urban environment, if I remember correctly. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. i'm not seeing it so t- tell me a little bit about you you, you know the philippines is near and dear to my heart my my wife and, and my daughter are from the philippines and um i you know we've actually were at clark air base a, a couple years before the pandemic and i don't know if you, you probably i don't know if you've been back there or not but no it's a shadow of what it once was when you were there um you got your first tracking exposure to some of the with some of the Vietnam vets back then. Did you ever happen to work with any of the guys from CTT combat tracker teams? Um, not that I can recall. No, these were all Air Force guys. Whereas uh-huh. the CTT, that's an Army program. Yeah. That was an Army program. So most of what I did was with the uh in fact recently I, I just placed a my financial, I just placed a lab with a Army Special Missions unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're trying to duplicate some of that and they had when i when i went down and met him and and delivered a dog to him mm-hmm. they had they had just said they had spent a day they had located several of the trainers from that program and had mm-hmm. come and spent a whole day debriefing them and giving them advice on how to recreate that program mm-hmm. um, so it, it, it's coming back yeah uh, just because i guess the, the the nature of the mission set that they're running into overseas now has changed yeah, well, I, I am. I've actually been. That's where I learned about the proximity alert was from the combat tracker guys, you know, back on the street when I I actually ran into some hairy situations and, um, you know, needed to get some training. And back then, tracking training wasn't available professionally. Number one, and then finding anybody to do officer safety while tracking didn't exist. And so, where this is pre-internet, 
Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> trying, trying to find any resource like that was difficult. But I happened to run into a, a couple guys, Frank Merritt and David Lane, who had been uh, with a couple of different CTT units back in Vietnam. And uh, they're the ones that actually talked to me about the, the proximity alert. That's that's where I, I learned it all from. And it's actually how what our program is based on now. We're currently training uh, lots of the SOCOM Army and, and Marine units here uh, on Edisto, specifically based on that training that I got from those guys back in the early 90s. Well, you know, a lot of it is so much of what we do crosses over, you know, a, a, a change of behavior or alert behavior mm-hmm. in a detection dog is very similar to alert behavior from a patrol dog during a building search, which is very similar to alert behavior, a proximity alert from a tracking dog. But for mm-hmm. some reason, people think, oh, this is a little, you don't understand. I'm a, I'm a tracking guy and you're a patrol guy and you're a detector dog guy, but changing behavior is changing behavior. And, and there's a reason for it. And if you understand it, a lot of these things are very similar. It's a um, body language, right? All yeah, about it's reading a, body language. It's all about reading body language with when you're handling a dog, no matter what the discipline is. I don't care if you're looking for bed bugs in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. It's the same. Yeah. And variations of the same theme. And of course, you're going to have slightly different things with different dogs. But for the most part, a lot of the behaviors do cross across the board. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, that I find interesting is, you know, finding that formal tracking training is 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 kind of difficult, especially, you know, for you and I, when we, we probably started right around the same time, you know, dog wise in law enforcement, but, um, you know, back, I remember back in those days, finding anybody to do tracking trailing was almost non-existent. I mean, you had to, it was almost like OG on the job training more than anything. Yeah. A lot of what I did evolve because back then most of the foundational tracking was coming from Schutzen and PSP and the footsteps. And that's where I got into it. I'm never going to catch anybody walking footstep to footstep. I got a scoop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of what I did was just evolved for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led me to have more success. Um, you know, I had, like I said, I, Pat, Pat was a, was a, a good mentor to me. Danny Lamaster was, a, was a big influence in my early upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it was just, like you said, it's just self-taught. This right. trial and error. Oh, I probably shouldn't do that. Or maybe I should do this. Or, and a lot of it for me, you know, some things you just got to learn the hard way. It's a hard job and sometimes it hurts. Um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I can remember in Idaho tracking a guy from a stolen vehicle through old farmland. And I went right smack into a barbed wire fence right across the thighs because the first, first two strands were missing. And the dog scooted right underneath at full bore. And I never saw it coming. I'm hanging off a barbed wire fence. and. <laughs> going in, in, in shots because uh, you're running in the dark without a light yeah, yeah. well I, just, uh, I think i've got more pain and injury from uh tracking dogs than i do just about anything else i ever did in law enforcement that's for sure <laughs> that was the one beauty of a bloodhound going uphill the old carabiner on the belt and let him pull you uphill <laughs> just drag you up there just drag you up there um but yeah you know it's like i'm i'm, I'm really happy in and i suggested maybe as a as a someone to get on the program is one of the South Carolina DNR boys. Cause they're doing eight dogs in that program and they're doing 40 to 50 cases a month, mm-hmm. which is a lot of tracking. Well, that's not all tracking. A lot of it's article search. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing a bunch of evidence recovery, um, mm-hmm. some wildlife detection, but the most of what they're doing is tracking, I guess, in South Carolina with this trespass to hunt thing. Yeah. Where- lots, lots of poachers. Yeah. And so they, all their, most of their time is they're finding a car where somebody's posted non, 
not allowed to hunt. They start, they pick up a track from the car and they track to the guy. And there he is, no license in the dark ocean. Um, and that program just keeps going and going. That's, that's my proudest moment in my career is those boys. Wow. And how did, how did you start that? How did they just reach out to you one day? When did that begin? Um, what's, I'm trying to think of the day. That's probably six years ago now. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of Texas Parks and Wildlife. They started a dog program with labs. Uh-huh. And I sold, I sold them 10 labs. And then they went to Utah Post for the handler training. Uh-huh. They started with a group of five. Then they went to another group of five. And they had huge successes with tracking, trailing. And they didn't. Some of them were narcotics. Uh-huh. Some were ever. And the head of Texas Parks and Wildlife and the colonel or the head of South Carolina DNR are friends. And he saw the success the South Carolina, the Texas dogs were having. And he said, how do I get a program like yours? And they said, well, this is where you get the dogs from and you need to send your guys to Utah post. Mm-hmm. And South Carolina was like, well, we don't want to send those guys all the way to Salt Lake It's a little bit far. So let's find a Utah post judge and or instructor to come here to do the program. Mm-hmm. So that's how they came out here. They selected a bunch of dogs. I pre-trained them, uh, had them doing hundred, hundred yard straight line right. tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went there for six weeks and then we finished the dogs off on tracking and then we did articles and then we did wildlife detection. And that was the initial five. And now it's grown to eight and they're probably going to add two more this year and one each year following. That's um, very, very cool. They have super strong administrative support um, from the, the head of the department all the way down. Uh-huh. Uh, just because of the amount of successes they had, I, um, you know, they've done stuff with the FBI HRT there in Charleston. Uh-huh. There was a training thing going on. Some of the, one of the dogs has gone to that. Um, mm-hmm. They've had successes on life finds on kids, lots of guns on crime scenes. Um, yeah. 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 They're very, they're very well thought of out here. You know, we've got a lot of good references to them. I haven't really worked with any of their dogs before, mostly the sheriff's departments and, and the police departments, of course, but the reputation of these guys is great. And I had no idea you were part of that. You yeah. Know, those are all my guys. <laughs> congratulations, brother. That's, that's awesome. Really proud of you. That's amazing. Yeah, that's like I said, that's probably the that's the pride of my career is those guys. Yeah, because you know, you've, you've gone places and you start programs and either through administrative indifference or uh-huh. hand, leave and move on or they just keep it afloat and they're not really successful. Mm-hmm. And you hate to see something you put all that time and sweat into um, go away. But to see a program that's not only been successful, but has grown. Mm-hmm. over the years is yeah it's it's a, i'm pretty i'm not a prideful man but i'm pretty proud of those guys amazing that's really really good to hear hey so tell me did you ever get much into the urban tracking trailing stuff i've done some mostly i just stayed a hard service um you know i haven't listened to your thing with steve white but some of this with the hydration stuff on hard mm-hmm. surface i don't know that i'm a fan of Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I had a dog go to an agency, a shepherd go to an agency here that was training in-house for patrol work. They had him for 10 weeks and they started him on the hard surface and they brought him back to me saying, we can't get him to track on grass. Mm. I, I said, how do you not get a dog to track <laughs> on grass? Right. This doesn't make any sense. They said, you don't even oh, need to train kidding. him to do that. They should be able to do it. Well, you would think, but they started with, so I've always, people always ask me, I said, that's a whole separate discipline mm-hmm. um, that you really have to have experience in and spend time in. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a rural guy, um, semi-rural. Um, urban's not my thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I never I never worked in an urban area as as a copper, so I didn't spend a lot of time doing urban. Um, anybody that approaches me that wants an urban class, I've got I'll refer them to people. I'll tell them to call you. I'll tell them to call Steve White. Uh-huh. Um, the Canadians up in Vancouver, uh, most of the Canadian guys are all urban tracking Calgary, the Calgary guys, Edmonton, yeah. Vancouver, Winnipeg, um, the OPP. Those are all friends. I've trained with all of them. And so if you're up there, then, hey, grab one of those guys because yeah. that's that's their that's their thing. You know, um, the dog world, I've, I've hurt some people's feelings because in the dog world, you know, if, if you want to learn about patrol work and bite work, you need a European. You want to learn about detection work you need an american and i think if you really want to learn a lot about tracking you need to get a canadian really oh yeah 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 um spending time with those guys really upped my tracking game a, a lot mm-hmm. um, i think my first experience with that was back you know back in the bob eden days for me when he was doing a lot of his conferences back in the uh the 90s yeah you know uh, yeah. that's that was my first exposure to the the canadian tracking systems really and you know there's some those are they you know there's their certification tracks aren't aren't a piece of cake they're level three tracking in an urban and stuff even their even their rural tracks with you know dead ends and uh double backs and okay. yeah they they do a lot of picked up a lot of things from them you know right. they're they've got that little thing that you know they're never-ending track where they go out tracking the guy goes out and he sits and waits for an hour and he gets up when the off he goes again and off he goes again and off, and they'll do that for hours at a time of course you're refreshing mm-hmm. the track every time it's not a six hour old track because the right. person moving right right it's not made a track and then i came back in six hours kind of like an active evader trail if anything really yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah that's basically what it is yeah and so I how do you really- how do you feel, you know, we're getting, and I've been talking a lot about this on my podcast in general, we're, we're seeing, um, you know, attacks on law enforcement and perception of law enforcement that's changed dramatically over the last, I would say, six or seven years that we've really been seeing it going. The only time I've seen reminiscent to what I see now is perhaps that was what was happening back in the early seventies when we saw kind of a similar type behavior, but now of course, with social media and the ability to see everything on the internet instantly, I think that perception is even worse and how it, it's affecting, you know, canine, um, you know, you're, you're primarily a single purpose vendor, but are you seeing more interest in primarily just scent dogs versus let's say, multi-purpose patrol dogs now than before oh yeah and in the last two years we've had more inquiries for people wanting to add tracking Mm -hmm. to say a lab for narcotics Mm -hmm. uh yeah my we've had way more inquiries on that in the last two years than ever before it used to be like i said there was it was isolated and Mm -hmm. now i'm getting a lot it's like hey i want a dog for track we want a tracking dog and a dope dog we don't want anybody we don't want anybody work um, and how about with the perception of the look of the dog? Are you seeing more a trend more towards the floppier dog oh, versus the pointier? For, for, for sure, especially for explosive detection in public events. Um, yeah. You're seeing TSA, uh, Customs and Border Patrol. They're wanting to switch over to labs for the perception. Um, yeah. You know, the private sector is is huge. Yeah, 
if, if you had told me, you know, 25 years ago that I could make a living doing what I do now, I would have laughed at you. I said, it's not possible. Yeah. It's, there's just well, no way. 25 years ago, I could have held up a sign saying free tracking training. <laughs> and nothing but crickets, you know? <laughs> yeah. Same, same thing with, same thing with, with bomb dogs. I mean, nobody yeah. ever wanted a bomb. It was, it was a pretty unique skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's how I ended up. One of my first training classes was uh, Danny Lamaster had got subbed out a contract from another trainer up north. This mm-hmm. is early '93 to train six members of the Saudi Arabian Royal Brigade and and bomb dogs and do an eight week bomb dog class. Mm-hmm. And I was helping Danny on NARC classes, and he came to me. He says, "You know how to train bomb dogs, right?" I said, "Well, yeah, I was a bomb dog handler. Yeah, I went to the." 12 week bomb dog class where we started with a green dog and went all the way through. He says, Well, how'd you like to train a bunch of Saudi Arabians? I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I did an eight-week class for Saudis just because people are like, I don't nobody knew what a bomb, you know, bombs weren't a thing at mm-hmm. that time. You only had two bomb dogs at most major airports like San Diego, uh San Francisco had some, LA had some, New York, not like not like it is now. It was sure spread out a lot more. So it was a unique skill set back in the early nineties to well, have it's amazing that. how nine 11 just changed our world canine world aside from the rest of the world, of course, dramatically. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It changed. And, and every, you know, and every, every time there's an incident somewhere in the world, but specifically in the free world that involves a bombing or a terrorist incident, the phones start ringing off the hook. Yeah. Uh, hey, I need bomb dogs. Well, I just, nobody has bomb dogs, sit, trained bomb dogs sitting on the shelf. 20, how 50. Oh, it actually kind of dovetails into my next question. I mean, I think you've actually already answered it, but maybe for our listeners, you could detail it a little bit more. How do you feel about multi-purpose canines and, you know, multiple jobs for the dog in particular when it comes to tracking and detection? How do you feel about that? In a perfect world, mm-hmm. I would prefer single purpose dogs. Mm-hmm. And why? You know, you know, um, if I've got cancer, can my general practitioner treat it? Probably, but I think I'd rather go to an oncologist. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if I've got a major nasty root canal, my general guy that does my routine teeth cleaning is probably going to be probably okay to do it, but wouldn't I rather have a specialist, mm-hmm. but it all comes down to money, you know, optimum in a perfect world, the, the Las Vegas Metro model is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a single purpose patrol dog and then everybody's got a single purpose, some type of detector dog and they've all got two dogs. Um, so from a financial standpoint, you know, it's, it's expensive, but from the output standpoint, you believe the work product is better. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, a dual per can, can a multi-purpose dog function? Sure. They can, they mm-hmm. can be effective, but I think if you spend all your time doing one thing and your focus is narrower, you're going to be better at it. I mean, even look at it from a human perspective. How, um, let's, let's look at it from a dog perspective. I mean, you've been around the block for a long time. I mean, you are one of the go-to guys, been around forever. You know, how dogs learn, how dogs think. Um, let's look at it from that perspective. How do, how, how do you believe dogs receive training when it comes to, you know, single purpose, dual purpose, so on and so forth? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question about how they perceive. Well, I mean, from our perception, I mean, you're, you're using an, an, you know, an analogy of a, you know, doctor or a dentist, but how did, I mean, when, how do dogs perceive this type of training or type of deployment? You know, is it all simply because of the amount of time we're putting into 
single type of training or can they multitask just as well as working a single task? I, I think that I think the dogs can multitask well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think is the human component picks one that they prefer. I got you. Okay. So that, that's kind of where I was leading to. I probably should. Yeah. Been like a little like most guys, I, you know, like I, I ran a dual purpose male. Um, I probably had, I don't know how many apprehensions I had without contact. Mm-hmm. I think in the eight and a half years I worked that dog, I think we bit six people, mm-hmm. but I did a lot of dope work. I was the only dope dog in that Valley, 86 miles from the Mexican border. Um, January 1994, I had the third largest over a highway cocaine seizure in the United States. I had 744 kilos of cocaine out of a semi-trailer. Mm-hmm. So most of my work was dope between DEA, FBI, our major crimes, our street level crime units, and all the neighboring cities. I was the only dope dog. So I spent more time on dope work than I did patrol work. And that was because um, that was your your go-to. That's where, that, that's where the work was. That's where right. the work was. Um, but, so you, but even with, even with my guys, when I was running my program, um, some guys were really into the dope work and they'd spend more time doing dope and they'd be out hustling dope, even though they had a dual purpose dog. Some guys, they were more interested in the tracking and they put their own time and effort into the tracking. Um, I think trying to keep the human motivated to put in the same amount of work effort for multiple disciplines doesn't work real well. Okay. I'm glad you actually clarified that because you and I kind of agree on that. I, I believe the same thing. Um, I think ultimately it, it ends up being the human proclivity for a particular style or discipline more than anything else. Sometimes, you know, what is it that we like to do that we want to do? You know, sure. if you're a tracker, you track, if you're a bite dog guy, then you like to do bite work. Um, right. I'll, I'll but, do the other stuff because I have to, but I'm going to do this other because I like to. And you want to. Yeah. And you want so, to. Let, okay. So let's say, you know, from a detection and uh, tracking standpoint, do you think that's a good marriage? You know, let's say um, explosives detection and tracking or dope and tracking or, you know, wildlife and tracking. You know, what do you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I think it's, it's if you if you've got the proper handlers that are motivated to keep the skill sets up, there's no decrease in performance. What would, you think, re- what would you recommend to these guys when it came, you know, for example, maintenance training, you know, when it came to detection and tracking, how, how often and what would you do per week? Oh, boy. Um, I can only defer back to like with my guys, five dual purpose dogs um, on a training night. They're all certified. They're all up to the level where they need to be. The first things we do is we do standards on a training day. Oh. Right. I want to see verbal outs. I want to see verbal call offs before we go anything else. And then we go scenario. It's like this whole big thing that suddenly launched because of social media. Ooh, suddenly people are discovering scenario based training. I'm sorry. We were doing scenario based training in California. Now. Okay. Yeah. It's not something new. You didn't discover it. Yeah. Okay. But it's, it's a whole marketing thing. Oh, suddenly we have scenario based and it's real life. We were doing that. I don't know anything else. That's how it was in California mm-hmm. from the, from since 1986 when I signed on. Um, mm-hmm. Well, California law enforcement is kind of a different animal compared to, I think, a lot of the rest of law enforcement. Oh, you, know, you're not- so you and I were spoiled rotten because we had, you know, we had that training component. We had the capability to do it. And actually, we had the financial resources and the paycheck to go with it. And, you know, that's not necessarily commensurate across the board, especially when we're looking at some of our, you know, brothers and sisters here in the far southeast. You know. uh, that's true. There's, you know, it's part of the reason why so many coppers die down there, yeah. right? If you look at the statistics, the mm-hmm. most amount of law enforcement were killed in the South. 
Yeah. It's, it's a big training component. So, I mean, we were spoiled rotten. I mean, we truly were. And, sure. You know, now that I have, a, I'm, I'm a vendor and a trainer here in the Southeast, I get to see both components. And, um, you know, the California aspect is completely, completely different. And so when we're talking about that scenario-based training, I agree with you, you know, because that was a, we didn't call it that. No, it was just training. Yeah, <laughs> it was, but it was all scenario-based, real life. Everything that we did from, you know, drawing our weapons and firing to, you know, a lot of the, well, the dog deployments we had to do on our own. There was no real schools for the tracking stuff. So what, what, what's your, what's your big goal right now? Where, where, what, where, where, what do you want to do? I mean, been around doing a lot of things. What, what's, uh, what's on the agenda for, for Pacific Coast Canine? Oh, just to stay the course and, and keep providing a quality product. Um, you know, staying true to what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a niche market. And I, I think it, just like we talked about with the dog, I've, I've got, my focus is pretty narrow. Yeah. Uh, uh, can I do the other stuff? Yes. Is it cost effective? No. Mm -hmm. um, I'm old and broken. I've got two artificial knees. I've got arthritis in every joint about, I can't handle any of that stuff anymore. 61's a bitch. <laughs> well, I'm right behind you, brother. I'm 57. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not fun yeah um, you know i i'm trying to figure out how to ease into retirement um uh -huh. you know my 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 wife business partner associate um uh -huh. the person who i wouldn't be where i am today if it wasn't for her for pushing uh -huh. me to do a lot of these things uh -huh. um you know we're talking about maybe maybe it's time to downsize but as she said, I'll never be able to downsize because the minute the phone rings, I'm going to pick up the phone. And if someone wants a class, I'm going to go. And if somebody wants a dog, I'm going to provide a dog. So I don't know how to say out of this, really. Maybe you shouldn't. You know, you're, <laughs> you've got a lot to offer. You've been doing it for a long time. And there's not a lot of folks out there that do what you do. And I think it's really necessary, honestly. I think this niche market is, is important because of the quality and not so much the quantity. Um, you know, for in my book, I think that the dog's ability level sells the program. And um, I had no idea your dogs were uh, with the, the fishing game out here. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Have you come out here and visit visited these guys or trained oh, with yeah. them out here before? Every, every year I come back and touch bases with them. I was just there for three weeks with them in August. Where I text you, you were overseas though. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, next time you come and whether I'm here or not, You've got, uh, you're more than welcome to come and, and stay here if you need a, a place to stay. I'd, I'd love to get a chance to meet you out here in person someday, if that's possible. Oh, I'm, I, sometime in this new year, I'm sure I'll be going back there. I spent three weeks with those guys and I did, um, instructor classes for three of them, mm -hmm. four of them. So that they can start doing more stuff in-house and mm -hmm. move me back out. Cause I've been bringing those guys along. Um, and they're super, they're super competent at producing nice dogs. They, they really are. Um, their article searches are super nice. They're, they've kept the tracks up. Um, actually it's kind of funny when he called me the Lieutenant uh, a couple months ago and he, every time they tell me they have a little track, I'm like, okay, what's a little track to you guys? Cause they, yeah. they had their first track that started in South Carolina that went into North Carolina. They jumped the state lines, yeah. uh, tracking a guy. And I was like, okay. And I said, well, it's just a little bitty track. I said, what's a little bitty track? They're like, well, nah, about 900,000 yards. And I'm like, you did an unknown track, a thousand yards through the woods and you caught a guy. And they're like, yeah, no big deal. And I'm like, no big deal. 
that actually that happens a lot out here. It's very, very common. Some of these long ass manhunts are very common in the southeast. Very, very yeah, and these guys think nothing of it. I'm like, geez, I'd be ecstatic with a thousand with that. Yeah. I've got actually one of my good friends. He was actually on the on one of the first podcasts that I did, Brandon Braxton. Uh, he's with Florence County, which is in the north part of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy, he, he gets put out on so many tracks and he has one of the highest success rates I've ever seen. He's got, I think, roughly 115 deployments. And right now, I think he's at 107 walk-up fines where he's actually caught the guy. Now, and most of these, mind you, are really, really deep in the swamps and in the woods. Oh, uh, well, and the places it, it, those guys go, you can pay yeah. me enough money. It's different. It's <laughs> a different here's, here's, here's my stuff. So we were training uh, my first round of dogs. We were at the Web Resource Center, which is up north, mm-hmm. up, up, up in the, the north. I don't even know how to describe it, where the heck mm-hmm. it is. It's almost on the Georgia line. Mm-hmm. Heading heading up that way. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to think of the name of the little town it's in. Anyway, we're, up, we're up there, uh, south of Aiken. Mm-hmm. We're, I don't remember. Where, anyway, so we're up there doing training there, and they've got a new class of wildlife officers there. So they go through the police academy, and then they go up here for four or five weeks of wildlife training to be fish cops. Mm-hmm. And we're there one night, and we come in from training, and they got this big old alligator in a dog kennel with a concrete slab, just snapping and hissing. I'm like, what's the alligator? They're like, Oh, well for tomorrow, everybody's got to wrestle the alligator. I was like, what? <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, part of your training. They're telling me you want to wrestle the alligator. It's like, no, uh-huh. I don't want to wrestle an alligator. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, no big deal. We just, they're, the, the key is to just go last because after that, the alligators had about 35 people pounce on them. It don't fight no more. And he's nice and tired. Yeah. Well, you know, said, it's, it's, y'all are crazy. Well, that that's part of life here in, in South Carolina, especially, you know, everywhere on the coast of Georgia, South Carolina and Florida is just inundated with gators. We've got them all over here and a lot of our tracking country. I remember one of the biggest stories I had, we had uh, the Marines out at one of our locations we were training in and we just got done running a really pretty long track about a mile and a half and we're getting to the end of it. And uh, we, we, we catch the guy, we finish up the scenario and it's just starting to get dusk and we're on this berm of a lake and we're looking out at the lake and the Marine who's from California, that's where he came from. He's looking out. He goes, Oh, so they do logging out here. I go, what, I go, what do you mean? He goes, aren't those all floating logs out there? You know, and there's probably like a hundred looks like logs in the dim light. And I said, no, no, those are, those are all alligators. He said, you're what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're everywhere. And the yeah, snakes too. The snakes are pretty pretty thick here as well. Yeah, South Carolina. I mean, it's a beautiful state from mm-hmm. January till or September to April. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful place to be. But you know, after spending so much time there, I don't know why. Not to you know, I'll probably get hate mail for this, but between the chiggers and the ticks and uh-huh. all the poisonous snakes and alligators and poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, there's so much stuff that can kill you in that state. It's ridiculous. Yeah, the chiggers. <laughs> Chiggers are by far the biggest bane of just about anybody in, in, in the tracking world. That's the worst critter on the planet. Oh, fun, funny, funny story. My wife, my wife thought I was crazy when I went back there and I said, okay, you need to buy me some knee high stockings. And she's uh-huh. like, 
uh, you're going to South Carolina, you want knee highs? I says, well, when we worked in the Philippines in the jungle, you wore knee highs because the leeches and the chitters can't attach to the stockings. Yeah. Through your skin. So you you went to work at night wearing knee high stockings. You thought I was switching teams or something, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, they, they're bad. I mean, and it's it's the summer months. We had them here this year, actually, all the way until November. It was so bad. I'm probably going to get cancer from all the DDT I sprayed on me when I was there with bug spray every morning. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. Each and every one of us. So listen, Ken, let, let, I want, if, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, let's talk a little bit about Pacific coast canine. So you're, you're located in Custer, Washington, and yes. the, the website is Pacific coast canine, Pacific coast spelled out. And then the letter K number nine, all one word.com. And Correct. what's the best email for guys to get a hold of you if you don't mind it's just, that out? Nope. Just Ken at Pacific Coast, letter K number nine dot com is my email. Um, cell phone is 360-410-8436. Um, text there. Uh, if you call, I'll leave me a message. I'll call you back. Yeah. And for all you guys out there, you know, th- this Ken's an amazing resource for some amazing scent dogs. Um you know, I work a lot with many of his handlers and, and dog teams coast to coast. And I can tell you uh, from personal experience, these, these are amazing dogs. And so if you're looking for great training, good dogs, I highly recommend you you work with Ken and get with them, especially for all our listeners who are there on the West Coast that need somebody relatively close by. Hopefully you can you can look them up. And Ken, I, I appreciate the time, man. This was, this was really a quite the fluid interview that we just had an hour and 15 minutes go by faster than I think any of my, 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 uh, interviews so far, I really appreciate the time. And, and if you don't mind, perhaps we can get in and, and continue this on another, another event at another day. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I, uh, you know, I'm honored. I don't think what I do is, you know, anything special. I think that I've just seen lots and lots of dogs through 40 years. Um, and it's a numbers game. That's it. It is. But but what you are is special. What you've done is great. Uh, and this niche thing, I think it's really important because the quality, in my opinion, is far more than the quantity, worth far more. And and uh, your business and what you do is kind of the epitome of that in my book. And and uh, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done for our industry and, and more importantly, for coming on Manhunter Radio and, and giving me such a great interview. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Jeff Shetler, available books, training courses, and the Tracker School by visiting tttk9.com or by following us on social media. Until next time, Cavete Lupus, beware the wolf.